Thank you for tuning in to the Voice of the Victim podcast. We discuss a lot of sad and potentially triggering things on this show. We try to be as sensitive and cautious as possible, but if you are sensitive to things involving abuse and may be triggered, please think twice before listening to our show. Hey guys, welcome to the Voice of the Victim podcast. My name is Ryan. And I'm Rosie. How are you doing, Rosie? Oh, I'm good. It's dark and it's only seven, so that's depressing. How are you doing, Ryan? <laughs> well, I just got home from work, like a 13-hour day. And if you're wondering why we didn't upload an episode last week, that's why. So I've been working a lot of 12, 13-hour days and haven't had time. So... Mm-hmm. Be nice but, to your mailman. So we appreciate you guys tuning in. We're sorry that we missed a week, but it might happen a couple times here and there between now and Christmas. You might know this already, but I work as a mailman, and this time of year is really busy. So I'm going to do my best to stay uh, with it. But <laughs> tonight, the case takes place in Springfield, Missouri, which happens to be the same town where the Dee Dee and Gypsy Blanchard story took place which is the third case that we ever covered mm, i remember it like it was yesterday uh-huh well i think that's because we just re-recorded it not too long ago <laughs> yeah it's probably <laughs> right i think a good chunk of our listeners actually found us through that story because of that hulu show so who are we talking about tonight rosie and tonight we're telling the story of rosalind mcginnis which is a request from a listener and patron named hannah so Thank you, Hannah. We appreciate it. Let's jump into it. All right. Rosalind McGinnis was born on May 14th, 1984, to Gayla Joan McGinnis, and they lived in Springfield, Missouri. And there are not a lot of details in this story, so we're mostly working from the Kansas City 41 Action News, or KSHB, and articles from the Washington Post, as well as some videos from People TV and a blog from investigative reporter Mary Cummins, who curated a few court documents from the case in the story. So um, those are our sources. We just want to get that out there. We're going to try to start setting our sources more often. Mm. And But this isn't a huge, high-profile, like super famous case, which is kind of surprising to me with all the details. Rosalind was an honor student, and she had ambitious goals from a young age. She wanted to be a vet- veterinarian when she grew up. And she also took violin lessons and wanted to become a violin teacher, which is really cool to me because music's such a huge part of my life. So um, she was creative, and she was also smart and ambitious. Rosalind also felt safe in the neighborhood where she lived. She and her friends would play together at a park just a few blocks away from her house. Rosalind's cousin, Dana who lived three hours away in Kansas City, mentioned that the families weren't very close growing up, besides occasional get-togethers. 
Uh, she also had a couple brothers. Their identities are pretty protected, but there were at least two of them. When Rosalind was still a child, her parents split up and her mother got custody. So her father was no longer a part of her life. One day, her mother, Gayla, was handing out flyers spreading the word of a neighborhood watch group. This is when she met a man named Henri Pietti. Who had been from Mexico. He lived in the neighborhood and they started talking and became friends pretty quickly. They grew to be pretty much best friends and one thing led to another and they started dating. Eventually, Henri asked Gayla to marry him and she said yes. So now Rosalind has a new father figure in her life and hopefully she would be able to become stable again after whatever unrest the split of her parents caused her. But, of course, it's never that simple if we're talking about it on our show. When Rosalind was 10, their newly formed stepfamily moved from Springfield to Wagoner, Oklahoma. Which is about four hours south of Kansas City, making the distance between her and her cousins even longer. So this isolated her from her family, and they kind of lost contact after that. They moved into a small house at 115 North Moss Avenue in Wagoner. It was about a 900-square-foot home with one bathroom. Oh, our house. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So, um, But they had three kids, so that would be pretty tight. It's pretty tight with three cats, let me tell you. Yeah. But within a couple of years, the family moved again, two more hours south to... Pa- oh, man. Pato? <laughs> Pato, Poto? Oklahoma. Oklahoma listeners, if there are any, please let us know if we totally butchered that. But I believe it's Pato. Thank you. So once they moved there, Rosalind started attending a new school called Pansy Kid Middle School. That's a different name for a middle school. The Pansy Kid Middle School is named after Pansy Ingle Kid, who was born in Paris, Arkansas. Um, She earned degrees from Indiana University and Oklahoma State University and continued her studies at the University of Oklahoma Temple University and UCLA and taught 42 years at Pato Schools and retired in 1960. So that's what the name of the school is. It's just kind of an unfortunate name to have, I guess. Yeah. Well, pansy's a flower, isn't it? Yeah, but it's also... Can be an offensive term. Yeah, I wonder when that started. Because my dad used to call me that. Nice. Yeah, it was very nice. During the 1996 to 97 school year, Rosalind was in sixth grade. She was in class on the afternoon of Friday, January 31st, 1997, when she was called to the school office. A young man was there to pick her up, and she left with him in a small gray pickup truck around 1.20 p.m., After this, she wasn't heard from again. At this time, she was 12 years old, and Gayla started to panic. Gayla reported them missing. The police report said she was wearing blue overalls and a dark shirt. She had red hair, grown out past her shoulders, and blue eyes. They described the man as well-dressed, in either a uniform or a suit, and appearing to be around 18 years old. So the suspect they're looking for is pretty young. They estimate only 18 years old, but they had no leads on who it could be. 
The suit or the uniform is strange. Yeah. So maybe like a secret boyfriend or something that no one knew about. Like they were going to get married, you mean? Well, hmm. I mean, that's what people, that's what I would assume if I heard that an 18 year old picked up a, a 13 year old at school or a 12 year old, I guess is what she was. But remember Jasmine Richardson? She was only 12. I suppose, yeah. When she had that boyfriend. Gayla reached out to the media to try to get the word out there. She also reached out to Child Search Ministries, who created and began to circulate a missing persons flyer for Rosalind. And they were extremely hopeful that they, that they would find her. Gayla also reached out to the cousins from Kansas City. The family and other volunteers worked hard handing out stacks of flyers. The more time passed, the more frantic the search became. So the cousin we mentioned earlier, Dana, said the search was really overwhelming because there was so much space to cover searching for this one person. And, I mean, that's how it is for every missing person search, you know? They have no idea where to begin, um, especially if they don't know where the person was last seen. I mean, here she was last seen at the high school, but... Like, there's still so much space to cover, and I can only imagine how helpless her family would feel trying to find her and how overwhelming it would be. A week passed, and they found nothing. Then, another week, and another. Eventually, people began to lose hope. And around three months later, shortly before her 13th birthday, the search was called off. Yeah, so they just hit a brick wall and lost hope. Because nothing new was coming out. And, yeah, that had to be a really tough time. I can't imagine calling off a search for my child. I know. know. Like, how defeated would you feel? So, it was silent for a long time after this. Nothing new came out. But now we're going to fast forward 19 years. To 2016. And... Now we're going to introduce a few new characters. These people are very important to the story. Um, They're from a state in Mexico, which is difficult for us Minnesotans to pronounce. (laughs) Um, But I tried my best to find the correct pronunciation. Um, Looked, I found two different pronunciations from different sources. So I'm just going to say them both. And we're going to stick with the one that was most common. Um, It's Oaxaca. Mexico. I saw another pronunciation that was Oaxaca or Oaxaca. Sorry, but we're going to go with Oaxaca because it seemed to be more prevalent when I was looking for it. It was more common. So mm-hmm. um, that's where these people we're about to introduce are from Oaxaca, Mexico. And uh, if any of our Mexican listeners want to correct us or verify that we're pronouncing it correctly, feel free to reach out. (laughs) Um, So, Rosie, who are our new characters in the story? Well, Lisa and Ian are an older couple from Oaxaca, Mexico. We can just say Oaxaca. Okay. I was just trying to phonetically, like, sound it out. Oh, okay. Neither of them were born there, though. Lisa was from the U.S., and Ian was British. And we don't know what their last name was because they kind of tried to keep their identity private but um they're just a really sweet older couple 
one day, Lisa and Ian were at a local supermarket. They were standing in line for the checkout, and there was a family in front of her with two carts full to the top with groceries, and several kids. One cart was just filled up with meat. So that would be a pretty dang expensive grocery haul, a whole cart full of meat. Sounds like, like your type of grocery haul. Yeah, especially when I'm trying to eat keto. But after all the items were added up, the family didn't have enough money to pay for the whole bill. So Lisa and Ian gave them what they needed to cover what they couldn't pay. And they were, they seemed like really kind and decent people. That's super Even nice. just from this. Um, but yeah, let's continue. The woman was very grateful for her help. Her name was Stephanie and her husband's name was Bill. It seemed like they were really struggling to get by. The kids were barefoot, but very friendly. Lisa and Ian were drawn to the family and started becoming good friends with them. The kids loved them. But sadly, soon after this, Bill and Stephanie took their kids and moved out of town into a small village in the mountains of... I already forgot how to say it. Oaxaca. Oaxaca. <laughs> so we got these four new characters. We got Lisa and Ian, the sweet old couple, and we have Bill and Stephanie, the couple with very many kids. I believe there were nine Very many. kids. Um, but in the short time that Lisa and Ian knew this family, they had really bonded with the children. So even after they moved, they tried to stay in touch, and they would visit the family at their new home. When they arrived at the family's new home, the kids were so excited to see them. They were hanging off the front of the balcony. Their new home was extremely isolated, and they didn't see people very often. But... Lisa had a weird feeling when they showed up at the house for the first time. She felt like something was just not right about this family and their living situation. I guess it was more of a fact that they were so isolated. And also the sleeping arrangements were kind of weird to her. Lisa saw that the children slept on foam exercise mats on a concrete floor. The mats were laid down inside three small rooms next to each other. Lisa described the rooms as more like three stalls in a line, each about the size of a walk-in closet. But hmm. she didn't see any pillows or anything, just exercise mats. And we forgot to mention, there were eight children sharing the space of three walk-in closets. Because um, Stephanie and Bill, they had nine kids, but one had already moved out. Um but this family just seemed to be extremely impoverished if their kids had to sleep in three stalls. Right. Very strange. Lisa, exercise mats, too. That's so uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Lisa and Ian kept in contact with the family and tried to do what they could to help them out. One day, they brought the family a cake. And while they were there, one of the little girls was lying down on her mat in the fetal position, secluded from the fun, and she looked like she just wanted to disappear. Lisa and Ian were worried because the children were all extremely thin, and their father Bill seemed to be very distant from them. Some of the kids even told the couple that their father didn't love any of them, and they got the sense that the children weren't allowed to talk around Bill. So it was clearly a difficult life for these children, and Lisa and Ian were overwhelmed with this 
nagging sense on them that they needed to do something to help these children and their mother, who got a similar treatment from Bill. They knew they needed to help the family, but they didn't know how they should go about it, or even why they felt the need to do it. But they were so blown away by the awful living conditions that they just couldn't ignore them. They continued to visit the family regularly and bring them food. And these people are great role models for all of us. Like, I know we all are entitled to our own privacy and, you know, you don't want to get involved in people's lives, tell them what to do or how to live. But if you notice something off with kids like this, I mean, sleeping in on exercise mats with no actual bedding in three walk-in closet size stalls and you know being having a very cold and distant father those are two red flags so and were they like makeshift rooms within rooms then or i'm a little confused with that setup yeah i'm not quite sure i didn't see any pictures but um they were small and it was like a concrete floor with exercise mats so mm-hmm. you know really uncomfortable but they, you know, they're not doing anything extreme here. Uh, you know, they're not trying to go on the offensive and be like, what are you doing to these kids? You know, they're just trying to do what they can to help and slowly investigate to see if they could do more. And it's so easy to turn a blind eye to red flags like this because it's not convenient. But it's the right thing to do, and it's... You know, one of the things we always try to think about when we're talking about these stories is like, what would I do in this situation? Mm-hmm. So I think the more we talk about it, it's an interesting example of how to handle something like this. One day while visiting the family, Bill mentioned that he was 62 years old. This shocked the couple because he looked much younger than that. But it also shocked them because they knew that Stephanie was only 32 years old, and her oldest kid was 16 going on 17. Then they really started to put things together. This woman could have been as young as 14 years old when she became pregnant with her first child. And even creepier, Bill would have been between 46 and 47 at the time. So a 47-year-old having a baby with a 14-year-old, and now they're married? And that's really weird. Yeah. One day, when Lisa knew Bill wasn't home, she called Stephanie and flat out said, We know there's something wrong. If you can get your husband either in jail or rehab, we'll help you. But as they were on the phone, Bill came home, and Stephanie frantically hung up. They didn't hear back from her. So it felt like they messed up. Like they were suddenly cut off from the family and ended up moving soon after this, so... They kind of had to accept that they probably wouldn't be able to help Stephanie and her eight children. But one day, Ian was out walking their dog, and by some miracle, he ran into Stephanie with her eight kids. Bill wasn't with her, which Ian had never seen before. So he knew that Stephanie had found a way to get away from him. And he and Lisa took the family in. And they give the kids food, who tore through two boxes of cereal within minutes. They were clearly really hungry, and then, even after the cereal, they made several peanut butter and jelly sandwiches for them. And 
while they cared for the children, they realized that most of them couldn't read or write. They had just been extremely secluded and cut off from society and clearly malnourished as well. Hmm. It sounds a lot like the other case that we covered, one of our first ones. Oh, yeah. With all those kids that they would take to Disney all the time. Turpin family, Mm -hmm. yeah. Episode 26, if you're interested. That's 26. Wow. Well, it was our first episode, but then we redid it at episode 26. You might be wondering how Stephanie was able to get away from Bill. Well, Bill had passed out after having a lot to drink one night, and this gave Stephanie the chance to gather the kids and escape from him. She got the kids ready, and they piled into a taxi and left to go find Lisa and Ian. But unfortunately, they had moved. Yeah, so she couldn't find them at their house, and they kind of just started driving around. And I'm still amazed that they were able to find Ian while he was walking his dog. Like, what are the chances that they'd run into each other? Now that she was away from Bill, Stephanie was finally able to open up to Lisa and Ian about what her life was really like. She told them that when Lisa had initially called her, she was too shocked to respond and that no one had noticed something wasn't right in this family situation before, or at least no one had said anything about it. Hmm. Knowing that someone cared enough to say something is what motivated Stephanie to find the courage to escape. It had been a dream of hers for many years, but seemed so impossible at this point. For years, several people had looked at Stephanie with judgment for the way her kids appeared. How could people not notice that something was so wrong and just judge her for... Right. Hmm. So you really got to hand it to Stephanie here because, like, that phone call where uh, Lisa and Ian were telling her, if you need help, we're here for you, it got interrupted by Bill coming home. But even though they got cut off, she was able to find a way to get all the kids together and escape. And even though Lisa and Ian had moved, they were able to run into Ian just randomly. Like, it's unbelievable how that all came together. But but you got to give her a lot of credit. Yeah. So two weeks after Ian and Lisa took her in, she was finally able to tell them something that she had been holding inside for 19 years and you probably know where this is going but if not rosie had speculations (laughs) stephanie looked at lisa one day and said look i have to tell you something stephanie isn't my real name and bill isn't his real name lisa was dumbfounded and replied who are you she replied my real name is rosalind mcginnis He molested me starting at 10 and stole me from school when I was 12. So I'm sure some of you have already put that together. But yeah, Stephanie is actually Rosalind, the girl who had gone missing in 1997, 19 years ago. Immediately, Lisa typed Rosalind McGinnis into a search engine and found the missing person poster. She showed Rosalind and asked, Is this you? And according to Lisa... Uh, Rosalind looked almost identical to the photo on the poster from when she was 12. Hmm. Rosalind turned to Lisa somberly and said, 
I've been waiting 20 years for somebody to do the math and figure out that a 15-year-old shouldn't have babies like this, and that at 20, I shouldn't have grown children. I've been waiting all this time, and I couldn't say anything. You're the first person who ever noticed that things were wrong and did something, and I'm so grateful. So, yeah, she when she was 15 and she had her first kid, she was hoping someone would notice, like, this is weird. Yeah. But no one ever did anything. So it's really nice to see the difference it can make in someone's life if we're just attentive and try to help people if we notice something's off, like Lisa Nian did here. And like we said from the beginning, Rosie, what's our motto? If you see something, say something. Yeah. But it's not that simple we got to be really discerning about how to do it because we don't want to cause more trouble than there already is you know if you do it too abrasively or you know too um you know not under the radar it can make things even worse so the way lisa and ian did it is really great they waited until the abuser was gone then they made their move Mm-hmm. went under the radar to make sure that it went as smoothly as it could. It probably helped a lot that they weren't intimidating her to leave him yeah. and to stand up to him. They were very subtle. True, yeah. Ian and Lisa were glad they could help, but also disappointed that it had taken almost 20 years for someone to do something. So many people had turned a blind eye to the situation. Yeah. So here's a 32-year-old woman with eight kids. One is almost 17. And like I mentioned earlier, she had a ninth child, her firstborn, who had already escaped to the U.S. But how did she end up in this situation? How did she go from disappearing from her school to in Mexico? Well, now we're going to go back to January 31st, 1997, the day she disappeared. The police report had said that the man who picked her up from school appeared to be a well-dressed 18-year-old. But it turned out that it was actually her mother's husband, Henri Michel Piette. Who would later go by the name Bill. So remember how Bill looked young for his age when he told Lisa Nian he was actually 62? Well, that's why the school thought a 46-year-old man was only 18. Hmm. Which is crazy. Yeah. When Andre picked up Rosalind from school that day, she had no idea why he was picking her her up early. He just kept driving and took her to Tulsa, Oklahoma, where they stayed at a hotel. That's when he told her that she would not be going back to her family. He told her that if they were caught, she would get locked up in a mental institution because she had allowed him to abuse her. So can you imagine? That's very manipulative. As a 12-year-old, getting all this piled on you at once, and that you'll never see your mother and brothers again, and that if you run away, you're the one that's going to get locked up, that the abuse is your fault as a child. This became his primary way of controlling her, and it's something that's really common, don't you think? Mm-hmm. We mentioned that she told Lisa that she'd been molested by Henri since she was 10. Rosalind had made a statement that, quote, he knew exactly who to target and how to get what he wanted. 
He was never a stepfather. He was a child predator who moved into my neighborhood and targeted my family. It's like life stops the moment you're abused. It's imprinted on your mind. (sighs) It's so unfair to have to go through this. But now we're going to go through the criminal complaint documents that detail what Rosalind told the police after she finally made her escape. In either 1995 or 96, shortly after Henri Piette married Gayla McGinnis at the Little House in Wagoner, Oklahoma, Henri first raped Rosalind when she was only 11 or 12 years old. Of course, she was just a little girl and had to recount all this over 20 years after it happened, so she can't be perfectly specific on the dates, but... It's understandable. Yeah. Around the same time, Henri took her to the van and had his son, Toby Piette, officiate a marriage between him and his stepdaughter. What? How weird is that? Apparently, Henri gave her a ring at the time, and I couldn't find any more info on Toby, the son, but that's so odd that he had his son marry him to his stepdaughter. But what's really odd is that Henri had this little ceremony two days before he married her mother, Gayla. So he married his mother-in-law after? Because he married... Rosalind, two days before he married Gayla, so that makes Gayla his mother-in-law. Hmm. Well, which... was it couldn't have been official. She was too young to get married. Maybe <sighs> yeah. the kid thought he was doing like a father-daughter thing or something. Well, it was official in his mind, Yeah. so it's weird. I guess the whole thing's weird, because it's weird to marry an 11-year-old. Um, so this means that he married Rosalind on March 31st, 1996, when she was only 11. It turns out that Henri had another family that Gayla didn't seem to know about. After Henri took Rosalind from her school, he dyed her hair black and forced her to wear fake glasses so no one would recognize her. Then he brought her to meet his other children and introduced her as their new mother. What? He I told forgot her, about that part. That is freaking weird. So he's got a su- second family on the side. It's just, and uh, these kids are going to believe this, that this... 11-year-old is their new mother? He told her that her name was no longer Rosalind McGinnis, and he would change her name several times, the latest being Stephanie. This is just so much for a child to experience, and Rosalind was so distraught. All she wanted to do was cry, and she wanted to run away. Gayla actually divorced Henri in 1998, but couldn't find him to serve him, so she served him via publication. So, uh, just can you imagine um, living in this? I mean, it's common with with uh, kidnap victims that it's just such a strange place to be in your life, to have your entire life in the control of this other person Mm -hmm. that doesn't care about your well-being and you're just stuck in this spot and can you imagine how stressful that would be and the anxiety no i can't henry dragged rosalind all over the u.s staying in random hotel rooms to evade being found just some of the states they lived in for periods of time 
where Texas, Montana, Idaho, New Mexico, and Arizona, before eventually making their way down to Mexico. But occasionally they would return to Oklahoma, where he would force her to write and mail letters to make people believe she was still in Oklahoma. Wow. That's sinister. Like, all a letter can tell you about um, where the person was is the nearest USPS plant to where the letter was mailed. And by the time the person receives the letter, the mailer can be nowhere near where they actually mailed it from. So it's such a sinister way to just torture the family. Mm -hmm. It's like, I'm still alive, but you'll never find me type of thing. It's really... Henri continued to sexually and physically abuse Rosalind. He not only raped her, but he also beat her, using various items from wooden boards, baseball bats, and beer bottles, to even using an assault rifle as a blunt weapon against her. Within a few months of her kidnapping, she was pregnant, but she didn't even realize it until she suffered a miscarriage. Henri forced her to flush the fetus down the toilet of their apartment. Oh, that's really terrible. I know. Wasn't that the beginning of a Law & Order SVU episode? Actually... the baby was alive? No, that's a different show. It was a different cop show that we tried to watch. Oh, you remember that? Yeah. yeah. Huh. If you know what we're talking about, write in and let us know, because I'm really curious now. When they moved to Mexico, they finally settled in one place. Which was an old mobile home with a rotted-out floor and no utilities. Gross. So there wasn't a floor? Well, it was rotted. I mean, I'm sure there was a floor because they had to walk on it, but there were parts of it that were probably, like, really mushy and gross. Oh, it's disgusting. So not only is he forcing her to live in this terrible, nasty house, but he's beating her with different objects and raping her over and over again. It's Mm -hmm. just... The verbal, physical, and sexual abuse was a daily thing. She was only 15 years old when she gave birth to her first son, and he was born in the back of a van. Henri forced her to go beg on the streets for food to feed her baby, because whatever money they came across, he would spend it on alcohol and drugs. Yeah. It also turns out that Henri was involved with the Mexican mafia and tied to a lot of illegal activities. So he was a scary man to live with. But Rosalind was a pretty creative person, and she thought of another way to make money besides just begging. Mm-hmm. Rosalind started making homemade ice cream and selling it. Which is a great idea for Mexico. It's hot there. But Henri was extremely controlling and made her check in with him hourly. She was only allowed to speak to people for business purposes, and no other conversation was allowed. At first, she had tried to escape on multiple occasions but she could never get away. And after she was caught, the consequences were brutal. Yeah, to this day, she has several scars all over her body from the physical abuse she suffered. I mean, just on her scalp, they found 21 separate scars. So just her whole... She's been so physically abused. On the day of one of her children's birth, Henri grabbed a stainless steel frying pan and started trying to smack her in the stomach. She protected her baby with her arms, but it cut her all the way down to the bone. He said it was because she spoke out of turn. What the heck? He was literally trying to kill the baby 
and he blamed her for it after she got a severe gash in her arm. Like, how unfair is that? But needless to say, the 19 years she spent with this monster were absolutely miserable, and she gave birth to nine of his children, plus the miscarriage. And despite all that, she did the best thing, the best she could to be a good mother. Oof. After escaping to Ian and Lisa's house, Rosalind was terrified that Henri would come looking for her and her kids. But she was able to contact the U.S. consulate in Oaxaca. Yes, good job. And they had said that they would help her out. They arranged for a fruit truck to taxi the family on a several-hour trip to the consulate. But when they arrived, the U.S. consulate wasn't able to help them. At this point, Rosalind was frantic, though, having nowhere to go, and she was terrified that Henri would use his mafia connections to track them down. And Oaxaca is deep into Mexico. It's nearly a 17-hour drive from there to the southern tip of Texas. 17 hours. So getting out of there would not be easy. And having no one else to call, she contacted Lisa again. This time, Lisa reached out to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children in Washington, D.C. And after seeing Rosalind registered as missing, they asked the family to take a bus north to Nogales, where there was a U.S. embassy. This was not a simple short trip either. This was about a 30-hour car ride. Like I said, they were deep into Mexico. Had to be a really miserable car ride. But thankfully, they were able to get a flight out of Nogales to Tucson. 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 <laughs> I always do that. And then to Dallas and finally to Kansas City. Your grandma lives in Arizona now. You got to know how to pronounce their cities. I know. <laughs> I do know how to pronounce her city. Was it surprise? Yeah. Nice. So Rosalind mentioned how none of them had ridden an airplane before. So it was scary, but pretty exciting for them. And it was like a newfound freedom they had after they finally got into the U.S. She was happy to be away from her captor, but the transition was difficult. The U.S. culture is completely new to the children and completely different from what Rosalind knew as a child. There are so many things when experiencing a transition like this that are really new to you. Like, even adjusting to American food has been a struggle for them. But the hardest part of all was knowing that Henri was still out there and could possibly show up any day. I can't imagine for the kids what a culture shock. I mean, right? They have this, no that's idea. That's all they knew. Small town that was so isolated. Right. I wonder if they even if they knew much English. No, probably not at all. I mean, they didn't know how to read or write. Right. Rosalind struggled with nightmares, waking up thinking that Henri was standing over her. And she was really nervous to go to public with her story. But she found the courage to do it because she wanted Henri Pietti to be found and held accountable. Her story was published in People magazine in September 2017, and that spread awareness of this man. Not much later, Henri had been trying to enter the United States. But they recognized him, and he was arrested and extradited to Oklahoma. That's such a good feeling. Yeah. <laughs> did you say Oklahoma? No. I've never heard it said like that before. <laughs> I think you did. But, 
Why isn't Rosalind with her family? Well, we'll get to that. But this was such a huge relief to Rosalind because she could finally let go of that fear, you know, that she was coming, that he was coming after her, just to know that he was finally detained. Mm-hmm. On Monday, June 10th, 2019, he was found guilty of all counts, including kidnapping, travel with intent to engage in a sexual act with a juvenile, lewd molestation, child abuse, and first-degree rape. Ugh. And in response to these charges, Henri said some disgusting things. But just to show how completely unremorseful he was, what I mean by that is he said, I never raped any children. I made love to my wife. We were married. Hmm. Which... It's so gross because it doesn't count if you kidnap a child and have some little BS ceremony in a van officiated by your son. But thankfully, he can potentially get life in prison, and I can't imagine a jury taking it easy on him. He stole two decades from this who was a little girl when he took her, and now a 32-year-old woman with nine kids. Yeah. And probably the most important two decades of her development into a functional adult. Well, for sure. It it won't be easy for her to adjust, let alone her kids, you know? Yeah. Rosalind is trying her best to move forward, but she has a very tiny income and cares for her eight youngest children. The children are very far behind their peers on education. And the children have a lot of interests, like reading animal rescue and gymnastics so they're really trying to integrate into u.s society and they have passions but it's got to be such a struggle they'll always have this really rough start in life this tough hand of cards dealt to them you know and they'll probably always have effects on them for the rest of their lives and it's another reminder to be empathetic to the people around us because We never know by looking at a person what they've gone through. These children are integrating into society, but it's not like they're wearing a big sign that says, my father kidnapped my mother when she was 12 and raped her and abused her and neglected me and my siblings, you know? They don't wear a badge that says that. But these kids are living among us now, as well as thousands of other survivors of abuse, and we never know when we're around them, so... Just try to be kind to everyone, you know? (laughs) Watch more Mr. Rogers and Bob Ross. That's what we've been doing. (laughs) (laughs) Try to see the brighter side of life while you have that luxury, because some people can't. Mm -hmm. And just think about what the people around us may have gone through. Because, you know, you can't really know a person just by seeing them. That's beautiful, Ryan. Well, thank you. It's also nice to see that J.C. Dugard's foundation, which we discussed when we covered her story, has really been helpful to Rosalind and her children. And in case you aren't familiar with that, the Jace Foundation provides support to survivors of long-term abuse. And if you haven't heard our coverage of her, go listen uh, to episodes 53 and 54, where we tell her story. Another very resilient woman. JC told People Magazine that Rosalind is going to accomplish everything she sets her mind to. She has confidence in her fellow survivor. Rosalind plans to move her family into a house 
and work towards owning it. The house needs a lot of work, but they had already gotten started on clearing out the garbage from the yard of the home and cleaning the inside. She said, I want my children to have the life I never had, and this includes a place to call home. They also kept in touch with Lisa and Ian, who helped them make all this possible. That's so sweet. I know. Ian said, I hope that people don't judge them and think that this is some kind of self-inflicted wound. They basically are victims of a circumstance they never asked for. Exactly. And like like I mentioned before, Rosalind, she has all this responsibility suddenly put on her because she was raped by this man who kidnapped her multiple times and now has all these kids. But even though she was put in this situation by a monster, she's she's doing her best and she's doing what she can to make uh, to take care of her children. Right. So, you know, that it just shows the difference in character, how selfish Henri was and how um selfless and kind Rosalind is. Right. In fact, Rosalind is just thankful to be alive and she said, "It's a miracle I'm sitting here today." Hmm. So that's powerful and inspirational story. Finally, one with a happy ending. It's been a while. Um, well, happier. Yeah, happier. So do you know anything about her relationship with her mom? No. I looked up her mom. Um, she's, from what I could find, living in Florida. But, I mean, there wasn't much information about their relationship. So Interesting. But, you know, it's going to be a struggle for this family for the rest of our lives. But it's good to know that they're safe now, at least. Right. Totally. Um, so, thank you guys for listening. Now we're on to the review portion of our show. And which one do you want to read, Rosie? I'll read the second one. All right. Well, the first one is entitled, You Two Are Awesome, Five Stars. Thank you so much. It says, Hey, Ryan. Uh, wait. Hey, Rosie and Ryan. <laughs> I just recently started listening and love your podcast. I've always been obsessed with true crime shows slash documentaries, but recently started listening to podcasts in the car and while getting ready in the mornings. VOV is one of my go-tos. I love how it's not too formal and you guys make it relatable. I also love how you focus on the victims rather than the perpetrators. I have a similar story as Rosie, and it was refreshing to hear her share, even knowing that there could be scrutiny. So thank you, Rosie. And Ryan, I have allergies and asthma too. Don't let the rude comments get to you. Your voices don't bother me one bit. Keep on doing what you're doing, guys. You are making a difference. From Tay Brienne. Brienne? Brienne of Tay. <laughs> <laughs> From the United States. So thank you again. That's really sweet. And I love that you appreciate that it's not too formal because sometimes I'm self-conscious about how informal we are when I listen to other podcasts that are so much more professional than we are. But you know what? It is what it is. You ready for the uh, second review, Rosie? Mm-hmm. It's entitled Love, Five Stars. Been binging all day, 
Love listening to you two. Great work, care, and detail. From Tate Serg. Sweet. Thank you, Tate.Serg. Appreciate that. Man, I had a rough day today, but I was excited to come home and record because we missed last week. And I don't know, something about doing this gives me a little bit of energy when I get home. And I've had fun tonight recording. That's really sweet. It's nice doing this together. Instead of coming home and working on a hobby by myself, work on a hobby together, and we're still spending time together. So that's pretty fun. But anyway, we're going to do our best to keep releasing regular episodes during this busy work season because people think that we make a difference, and that's really cool. And Rosie, do you want to talk about the conversation you had, or should we talk about that later? With my mom? Yeah. What did I say? (laughs) You just talked about how since you shared your story, you've gotten to a new level of healing. Like, Oh, yeah. How you're able to talk about it now. And be okay. No, yeah. I don't get the anxiety and the shame and the guilt anymore. Yeah. Just a good healing process to get your story out there and then have other people comment on it in a positive way, you know? Yeah. Nikki, from our last listener story, recently messaged us about the same thing, you know, just about the healing factor of sharing your story. So if you have your own personal story, feel free to send it to us. We would love to hear from you. I mean, obviously, it's up to you and your comfort and what you think is best for you because everyone's different. But it has been helpful to mm-hmm. many people that share their stories to be able to, when you're able to talk about it without breaking down, then, you know, that's a big step forward. Right. I suppose we'll wrap this up. So thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next week. Bye. Everybody has a story, and not all of those stories are clear black and white issues, even when we think they are. We wonder, how did this happen? Or what is that like? Or what happens next? Are you sure you really want to know? This is Ignorance Was Bliss at IWB Podcast.